0: Good evening, friends, and welcome back to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival. Good to have you with me. Hope you're doing well this week. Hope you're not uh, too lonely or um, just feeling too, you know, cut off. I hope you're. Hope you're doing okay. And I'm thinking about you all. This week we're going to be looking at uh, the. Uh, Lectionary reading, not the one that will be covered this Sunday. Uh, Kristen will be talking about the ascension of Jesus this Sunday. Uh, but I'm going to be taking another passage from this week, uh, this week's lectionary from First Peter. Don't hear too often from First Peter, but tonight we're going to hear from First Peter. So first off, I'm just going to read it to you. This is First Peter 4 verses 12 through 14 and then chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 from the revised common lectionary Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Thus closes the book of First Peter. So let's do a little background. What even is First Peter? Well, it is a pastoral letter written by Peter from a place called Babylon where he is accompanied by Silas, who goes by the name Sylvanus in the text, and Mark. The letter is written to five churches in Asia Minor, and it reads very much like a Pauline letter with an opening or a greeting and so forth. Um, but it is also almost certain that this is not written by Peter himself. It is almost certainly written by a disciple of Peter, someone, someone who was perhaps taught by him, Someone writing in the name and in the tradition of the revered apostle. Also, you'll like to know that Babylon is a stand-in for Rome. I don't know if it was you know code or something uh, used to keep the Roman authorities from uh, fingering them. Uh, But when you read Babylon in First Peter and also often in Revelation, it is a stand-in. It is code for Rome. To whom is this disciple of Peter writing? We will call him Peter throughout the lesson tonight, just to keep it simple. To whom is Peter writing? Well, these churches are described as exiled and they're all in Asia Minor. So Peter is here using the language of Israel, the language of exile to describe Christians of his time. However, they have not been forcefully exiled as the nation of Israel was. Rather, it indicates that this world is not their true home. That's my best um, guess based on the research I did. The language of the book and of our text suggests that there is a real persecution happening, but it's probably not being done by the authorities yet. That is to come, but it probably is not government official Authority persecution is probably something less severe, something like social marginalization, something like ridicule, uh, something like being, you know, ostracized and um, marginalized, maybe in pretty severe ways, but it doesn't appear to be official uh, government persecution. And we don't really know the circumstances beyond the fact that Christians were being sidelined somehow and that Peter was addressing this. Somehow they're being made to pay for their commitments to Jesus Christ. So that's what we know a little bit about this letter. I could go on, but this is a Bible study for us today. And the Bible is what we call a living document. Do you know what that means? It means that it is instructive for Jesus followers at all times and in all places. It is more than a simple letter written in first century Palestine by Peter to these five churches. It also is instructive for us. So let's go back over this passage and see what it might have to say for us here today in 2020 in Decatur, Georgia. Let's go back to the beginning. Give me a sip of water here. Hold on. Throat's a little dry. Stay hydrated. Hydrated and happy. That's what my 11-year-old always tells me hydrated and happy. So let's go back and let's go back and look at this and see what we can what we can dig out of it. Back to the beginning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Fiery ordeal. Goodness, this sounds serious, doesn't it? Unfortunately, as I already said, there's no further detail in the book about what this fiery ordeal might be. The language suggests persecution, but like I said, there's no evidence for that other than this language. There's no specifics at all. Uh, That being said, have you ever been through a fiery ordeal? I have, and even though it involved no actual flames, I have felt on occasion as if my very life were burning away. Mental health trouble can do that for you. I've had my time of trial with that. Health problems of family members, stress from unemployment, and other circumstances have threatened me. What has your fiery ordeal been, or ordeals? Certainly you've had them. If you've lived on this planet for any amount of time, you have had your own fiery ordeals, times when your faith your trust in God was challenged. Of course, ordeals can be communal as well as individual, and it seems that our church, First Baptist Church of Decatur, along with virtually every other institution in America and maybe even the world, is undergoing an ordeal today. So, is this ordeal occurring, COVID-19, so that we might be tested? Did God orchestrate this? Is that what Peter is describing here? Are we being tested by God like the first century Christians were described as being tested deliberately? Up front, I will say that this language has always bothered me because it sounds like God is waiting for me to fail. Or at best, God is watching me, held in suspense at how I might respond the idea of God watching might bring some people comfort. You know, his eye is on the sparrow sounds good to many people, but to me, it is always, this is just me personally speaking here, has always creeped me out a little bit because it, it, despite its intention, I know it's an, the intention of, of that is to describe God as being loving and attentive. His eye is on the sparrow. He is watching he is testing us i do not test my kids no wait, scratch that i don't deliberately test my kids but if you were to ask them they might tell you that i test them from their point of view i might test them a lot from my point of view i'm not deliberately testing them I don't really like that language. But as little as I like it, being tested by God is something that shows up throughout scripture. In Genesis, God tested Abraham by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac. In Exodus, we read that God tested Israel by providing daily manna. God tested Israel by not giving them more than they needed at that moment. The psalmist in the 26th chapter implores God to test his heart. Isaiah tells people that God has tested them in the furnace of affliction, quite a way with words, oh, Isaiah had. And of course, Matthew writes that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit that he might be tested. So we can't avoid this idea of being tested. It certainly accords well with experience. I have felt on many occasions, some of them I mentioned above, and I could list more, I have felt on many occasions as though I were being tested. The sense of being tested has been acute in my life. Why are you doing this to me, God? I have felt, and I have probably even said, I am certain that I have said. So maybe it is like me and my kids. I don't mean to test them, but I do. The experience of life tests them. And I kind of watch them, too, to see what happens. I just want them to grow. Maybe this is how God sees us. Life tests us, and God wants us to grow. Let's move on. Next two verses. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when His glory is revealed. If you are reviled from the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, the very spirit of God, is resting upon you. Here we have another conundrum. Rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings. What does it mean to share Christ's sufferings? To me, that means not just any old pain or difficulty we may experience, Pain and difficulty come to us for many reasons. It may come from our own failure to be honest or to show compassion or to do the thing God is calling us to do. We may suffer for those reasons. Avoiding the thing that God wants us to do can surely produce pain and suffering. Just ask the prophet Jonah, he'll tell you. We can also suffer as a result of our own anger, envy, or greed, our sins in other words boomerang on us and hurt us often but we are told to rejoice in so far as we are sharing Christ's sufferings none of these are Christ's sufferings suffering is born from other things not just anger envy greed and our failure to do the right thing suffering can also be born of faith and hope and love faith means trust and trust can be broken hope can be delayed or disappointed love can often lead to heartbreak yet we are called to have faith we are called to bear hope we are called to love others jesus in fact repeatedly tells us to do so it is the suffering that we that comes to us from our love that is the suffering of Christ. That's what we are to rejoice in. So here Peter is telling us that we should rejoice in suffering that arises precisely because we have obeyed Jesus' command to take up our cross and follow him in the way of faith, hope, and love. If we do this, Peter says, the Spirit of God, that's capital S, Spirit will be with us. Next verse of today's reading humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that he may exalt you in due time humble yourself so that he may exalt you here we have that old theme of scripture that shows up again and again and again in a million different ways the upside down ethos the upside down kingdom of god the last shall be first and the first shall be last blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the whole earth, enter through the narrow gate. He had no majesty that we should look upon him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Over and over again, the Bible tells us plainly that reality is not as it seems, that God confounds the standard operating procedures of the world and that power lies precisely in surrender, that truth is hidden in plain sight, that wide and well-lit paths lead to destruction, and that God Almighty is found in the faces of the poor. We are told to be humble. What does it mean to be humble? It does not mean humiliation. It does not mean thinking badly about oneself, nor does it mean self-hatred. A dear friend told me years ago, and the longer I live, the more I think he's right, that humility means being right-sized. right sized It means knowing yourself well enough to see where you end and others begin. It means remembering that there is a God and that you are not God. It means knowing before whom you stand. But in everyday nuts and bolts terms, humility means taking up your cross and following Jesus. That is the humility that leads to exaltation. The small surrenders daily That is the humility that leads to exaltation. But the exaltation part is not ours to worry about. That's on God. Our job is simply to walk humbly. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. That's the next verse. Cast all your anxiety on Him, on God, on Jesus Christ, because He cares for you. Now, this is quite a verse here, is it not? Cast all your cares upon him. Apparently, we are not big enough or strong enough to carry our own anxiety. This is a clue that bearing our own anxiety is not the same as bearing our own crosses. Perhaps Christ's yoke really is easy and his burden really is light. Giving up your anxiety to God, letting God have your anxiety, casting your anxiety on God is precisely part of being humble. When we carry our own own anxiety, we presume to be strong enough to do so. We presume to be in control. It is a kind of reverse ego trip to attempt to manage our own unhappiness or to think of ourselves as less than or to defer to others when we really have something to say. So we should cast our anxiety on Christ. Note well, I am not here referring to what we call today generalized anxiety disorder, which is a mental illness, but to the normal worries and concerns and stresses of regular human life that can nonetheless shut down joy and rob us of energy and of our concern for others. I believe that taking up one's cross refers to actions we take in faith, hope, and love. It is the doing of these things and sometimes the not doing of things. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, working on a Bible study, attending to my students, clearing the kitchen, taking time from a crushing schedule to connect with God and nature, caring for children, asking for forgiveness, forgiving, spending time with a friend in need. These are examples of taking up your cross Which is often something that you just don't want to do. Casting anxiety on God is different. It means deliberately letting go, and it is often not pretty because we don't really want to do it. We don't really want to cast our cares upon God, we don't want to cast our anxiety on Him because we don't really want to precisely because it means giving up the illusion of control, which is one of our most beloved illusions. Jesus surrendered his anxiety. Job did. Jacob did. Abraham did. And every time it was not pretty, it was a hard struggle. It was a fight. It was a wrenching. Women in the Bible are better at it, and virtually every one of them did it so often that we hardly even notice it, this surrendering of anxiety. Women are better at it, and virtually every woman in the Bible did it so often that we hardly even notice it. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, Ruth, Esther, and of course Mary, and many others. God will take your anxiety and your worry if you release it. If you release these things to the care of God, you will find yourself lighter, freer, more creative, and intuitively intuitively able to solve problems that used to confound you. That's my experience, and I think it is consistent with what we find in Scripture. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Discipline yourself and keep alert. I am reading the Harry Potter series to Kristen, my 11-year-old. We are now in the fourth book entitled The Goblet of Fire. In this book, there's a new professor at Hogwarts named Mad-Eye Moody, and he teaches the kids how to counter the curses of the so-called dark arts, how to keep them from hurting them. Dark wizards who employ the dark arts often cast dreadful curses on their opponents, and Moody's steady word to Harry and his other students is constant vigilance, that's what he says all caps, constant (laughs) vigilance. He tells them they must look out for those who work for Voldemort, who, if you don't know, is the King Daddy Evil Guy in the Harry Potter series. He also tells them that those who wish to harm them will not warn them before they attack, they'll just attack. I have experience of this. I don't live in Harry Potter land but I have experience of it. As I've grown older, I have become convinced that there is a force within me that seeks my destruction, and I also believe a similar presence lives in others, and it is often expressed and multiplied in communal contexts. This negative force, sometimes presence, you might call it, often referred to as the devil in Scripture. I have experienced that presence in myself, and when it bleeds out into a community, it often multiplies and leads to systemic racism and xenophobia and war and violence and all kinds of trouble. But it is real. And Peter is telling us here the same thing that Mad tells his students at Hogwarts. Your adversary is prowling for you, looking to devour you, but you must stay alert. Constant vigilance. Be strong, friends. We are now out of time, so I'll conclude tonight's lesson with these words from the last two verses of Peter's 1 Peter. I could do no better than to offer you this promise tonight. And after you have suffered for a little while, friends, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Good night, friends. Be well. I love you.